out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall, as you know. We love a special guest. This week it's going to be the uh, turn of the legendary jazz trumpeter. It is the one and only Henry Lothar, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. He's played with hundreds of different people and also has played at Woodstock as well in 1969, not 1999. But um, yes, has played with the likes of the Buzzcocks, Talk Talk, Gil Evans and so many more. So I won't bore you anymore because <laughs> you'll find out about it in this interview. But after several minutes of interest and a casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Henry, it's over to you. A musical awakening, well, that's difficult in a way because, I mean, I've been a musician since I was about five years old. You know, yes. and I grew, I grew up in the Salvation Army and the brass band world. And then through my teenage years, I was a, studied violin. I was very much into classical music. And then I uh, discovered Indian music. And then I discovered jazz. And of course, the jazz has been my first love throughout most of my life. Yes, absolutely. And during yeah, that... Yeah, sorry. And I was just going to say there was a, the big awakening for me regarding jazz was hearing a record by Sonny Rollins. Right. There you go. So and, that was important. And I was going to say, because you mentioned the Salvation Army, did you come from a kind of a musical family? Were your parents... Um, part of a, a musical background as well. Yes, they were. My father was a cornet player in the Salvation Army's band, and his two brothers were also um, brass band musicians. And then on my mother's side, my um, my I know my grandfather played the trombone in a military band and also he used to play the piano in pubs and things. And then his brother, that's to say my great uncle, was, a, was quite a well-known figure in the brass band world in County Durham. That's to say, not Salvation Army, what in the Salvation Army you call outside bands. <laughs> he was a well-known figure, and in fact, he founded something called the Durham County Brass Band League. Right, uh, yes. So, so I did come from, and then my uncle, which was my mother's youngest brother, was also a dance band, jazz, uh, well, a dance band trumpet player. I don't think he was uh, played jazz as such, but he was a he played in the you know the the era of the dance bands in Britain. Not not a professional, a semi-professional. Right, yeah. blimey, that's that's quite that's quite the CV, isn't it? So music was always <laughs> literally live, not just recorded music. Was always yeah. in your house and um, in your in your world actually. So when you got to that kind of tricky age, that is sixteen. Um, did you leave school at that point and and sort of uh, follow music as a sort of a career path, or did you? go into some other form of work? <laughs> well, out of all kinds of things. I stayed on at school into the sixth form and I studied uh, A-level music. At this point in my life, as I'd said earlier, the violin was the most, was what I was doing. Right. I, I did play in a sort of amateur come semi-professional orchestra in Leicester, the um, Leicester Symphony Orchestra. And, and I pursued uh, A-level music and then I went to college as a violinist at the age of 18. Uh, however, I didn't stay. I left after only one year. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I, put, I did all kinds of day jobs. I worked 
as a porter on the railway station in Leicester, including like shift work, you know, working in the middle of the night. And, uh, I worked in engineering factories and I never really expected to be a professional musician. Yes. And I've always explained my path into, into professional uh, music. I've always explained it as like coming in sideways. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't one of these people who came out of music college and went straight into, you know, being straight, becoming immediately a professional musician. It's been a, a sort of uh, a gradual process for me. Yes, but I guess at that stage there was a sense of, I suppose, I mean, I know it was more the popular music front, but I remember seeing a film a few years ago. It was a Martin Scorsese film about the Rolling Stones. I think it was called Shine a Light. And there was a little clip of Mick Jagger in 63 being asked how long he'd think he'd think he'd be in, in, you know, in music and in the band. And he sort of has this little look and stares up and goes, oh, probably another 18 months. And we all chuckle because obviously that was 1963 when they didn't think music was going to last and definitely not be a career for the rest of your life. So I don't think, I suppose a lot of people didn't really think it was going to be, I mean, I know that was the kind of the pop rock world, but at the same time, I don't think anybody kind of imagines it's going to be the one that, the one thing that you're going to do for for, for basically your whole life until until the end, really, isn't it? So it's quite quite amazing story. So when when you got into the the kind of 60s, how, this was kind of, I suppose, you in your early 20s, were you just playing in lots of different bands at this stage? Yes, at various points. I mean, I, I I came to live in London, apart from the, the year at college that I mentioned earlier, I came back to live in London in 1963. And until then, I'd been playing with some local musicians in Leicester, students and things. I wanted to play with better musicians, uh, which is why I came to London. And I had an opportunity uh, to somewhere to stay. Uh, via one of the students I'd played with in Leicester, who was now living in London, and uh, he said I could come and stay there. So I made that move to London. And then, really, I just played with jazz musicians, uh, uh, you know, around that time, the people that I'd met, and until eventually, of course, I got the job uh, as an extra musician with Manfred Mann. Right. That, that was in 1965, and that through to the summer of 1966. And um, and of course, I I earned more money doing that than I'd ever earned before in a in a in a, you know in a, in day jobs. Yes. And um, so uh, during that time, I've, I I I got married, and I when that job came to an end, I actually went back to working in day jobs. I do, I worked uh, for the Automobile Association in London, in offices. Um, but I'd, I'd had saved up enough money with Manfred Mann to buy a to buy a flat, so that was a very, you know, the look, looking back on my life, that was a, a great thing to be able to do. Yes, but nevertheless, a... I couldn't earn a living anymore as a musician. I had to go back to doing uh, to doing day jobs so... and play, playing in the evenings. Mm. And then I got the job with John Mayall. Right, six months. And after that, I never did another day job. I would, by then, I started getting freelance work, studio work, and then playing, earning money playing jazz and things like that. That's amazing, isn't it? And do you work with people like John Dunkworth and then and John Mayall? Then did you did you sort of appear with Keith Hartley, the Keith Hartley band as well? Yes, 
Yes, I joined Keith Hartley. In fact, after I said I'd worked as a freelance musician after, after uh, when the John Mayle job came to an end, it was a, and I had a friendship with Keith Hartley, and he asked me to join his band. And uh, although the money wasn't anything like as good as I'd earned before with John Mayle and things, uh, nevertheless, I like life on the road. Right. Playing in one band, rather, you know. So I joined Keith Hartley for, for that reason. Yes. So was um so this was a time when I mean, did you get sort of because you were in London and obviously it was very swinging during that period between 60, especially from sort of 63 to sort of 70. Yeah. Did you get slightly caught up into the excitement of that kind of I suppose the 60s counterculture and the sort of the, the <laughs> sort of hippie movement? Was that something that was kind of on your radar? Well, I mean, I was aware of it, and I know what was going on with you. There's a lot of talk about swing in London, but somehow or other, when it's when you're at a sort of fairly young age, it it's actually becomes it becomes a kind of normal thing. However, I've I've often explained, you know, with um, some of the thing, the more you know tales, salacious tales about uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, I didn't see a lot of it, I have to say, you know, because uh, Manfred Mann's band were, were pretty straight, all straight guys. And when I can always remember almost in shock and horror when I joined uh, John Mayle, and we were going to one of the, I think it was my very first gig, in fact, we were going on the way to Southampton, and I think Paul McCartney had been arrested in Japan on a drugs charge, and all the guys in the Manfred in the John Mayles band at that time were going, well, you know, that's what happens when you mess about with all that stuff, because John Mayle was never into all that, and uh, right. nor were any of the guys in the band. Dick yes. Axel Smith and me, the saxophone player, Dick Axel Smith, and, and myself, we like to pint. You know, we go in a pub and have a couple of pints. The other guys didn't really drink at all. Yes. Or, or, or you know, I think, uh, you know, or drugs. I mean, it was quite straight. It's a, a lot of people are quite surprised to hear that, but that's what I remember. I remember though, they, and John Mayer was a straight guy. He liked a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean, and he, and he smoked very heavily, not cigarettes, not 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 uh, dope. Yes, know. okay, yes. Keith Farley. I mean, the bass player Keith Farley liked he liked uh, drugs and things, but. By and large, it wasn't like, it was like you know, it was a, I felt that a lot of it was a little bit exaggerated, certainly yes. from my own experience. I guess there was a, probably a few kind of individuals who's, who were well-documented that um, had that life story. But then, this is the exciting thing, sort of as, as we had the Summer of Love in 1967, and then it progressed on. You, yeah. with, with the Keith Hartley Band, you then appear, do you, you start touring, obviously, heavily and yeah. going abroad. So yeah. you go to America and you, and, you, and you perform at Woodstock? That's correct, as we did. We, it was our very first gig of an American tour. That was our introduction to America. Yes. <laughs> so you looked at the itinerary, thought, oh, that's good. I must get a passport. We're going to America. Oh, we've got a couple of... Did you have a, like a, a festival circuit or was there a club circuit with a, a couple of festivals thrown in? Yeah, yes, it was like that, really. I mean, after Woodstock, we played in a club in New York City. And then we went to Chicago and played in a little club there. We went to Detroit and played, uh, I think, just one gig there. We played the the Grandy Ballroom, which was quite a well-known uh, venue in Detroit. I know when we were in Chicago, we also played at a festival in Ann Arbor, 
And then we went to uh, Los Angeles, playing in what then was the big trendy club on Sunset Boulevard called the Whiskey Go-Go. Wow. A lot of expat British rock musicians hanging about the place. And then, then finally we went to San Francisco and uh, played uh, a venue. It was known as Fillmore West. Right. The original okay. venue. It was another place. Yes. So, yeah. which is amazing. So, what's your memories of? Um, I mean, that must have been quite a tour, from yeah. leaving the the shores of Great Britain to then returning, thinking, "Wow, that that's an experience that's kind of had a few adventures." So, what was your memory of the Woodstock experience? Because obviously, it it got filmed well, and there was a great soundtrack, but um, it it sounded a bit a bit messy in places. Well, I mean, I often recount the experience because it really starts when we got off the aeroplane, which is the Friday afternoon, and I'd never encountered humidity and rain, and thunderstorms and things like that in England. And we said, our manager met us at the airport. He'd hired a big American car. And the band was five people, and then there was him, and then he had a girl with him from the record uh, company, I think. And we set off up Highway 17 to this town, Liberty, which is where the hotel was bought. However, we, the rain was incredible, uh, the storm. So we pulled off the motorway or the highway, Highway 17, I can remember it was. And we, we found a, a diner to have something to eat in a small town, a village, really. Yeah. While we were there, they had the radio on and the radio was saying, there's a traffic jam on uh, Highway 17 of uh, about 10 miles long. There's all these people heading to this festival of which there was an estimated 200,000 people there. And then 10 minutes later, the radio bulletin came on again and said, well, it's now 20 mile long traffic jam. There's an estimated 400,000 people at this festival site. And, uh, and there was talk about the the governor of New York State was sending in uh, the army. Yes, the military, state of emergency. <laughs> so we were thinking, well, how are we going to how are we going to get there? There's a twenty mile long jam on this uh, road. Yeah, so we we bought a map and uh, and negotiated uh, our way, uh, you know, th there by road. Right. Passed through all these Amish communities, all riding horses and carts and walking along the road and things. And then we got to the hotel in Liberty and the booking system had broken down. There were people sleeping in the corridors. We went into the restaurant to meet our, a guy who's going to be our roadie for the whole tour. I remember seeing the Who in the restaurant. Our manager went up the road and found, got the last two rooms in a motel. So we were a party of eight now. So we, we shared two rooms, you know, and um, on the next day, we had to go to an airfield. Uh, we had to try and get, you know, on a helicopter. Right. My goodness, and, this uh, is this is so exciting. And, yeah, it was very strange. And, and but the do doctors uh, were getting like priority on the helicopters, so we had to wait. But the rule was, if you could get there, you played. <laughs> Any attempt at a, a schedule for the uh, festival had broken down. You know. And then I do remember this getting this helicopter being strapped in and they didn't close the door. And I was I was right near the edge and was looking down and all the fields around there where they'd been ploughed were like pink 
in the way that they are in Devon, you know, the pink soil. Right. Um, eventually, the guy is sitting by the door with the helicopter. He, he pointed uh, and had a look, and it looked, looked like another pink field. But as the helicopter came down, he realised it was the sight of uh, half a million people in a field, you know. <laughs> and then, and then we, then we, uh, you know, eventually we played. You know, we didn't. We, we were very nervous, but big enough to do our first gig in America without it being something like the Woodstock Festival. Yes. And I found out that all the other bands uh, were all had the same issues. There are a lot of. If you if there's a big coffee table book you can buy on Woodstock. Some some students of mine uh, gave it to me a few years ago as a as a present. And um, it's got the complete history of the festival, how it, how it became. And then it's got the complete list of all the bands that played there and when they played in yes. order. And um, you can you see some of the comments by some of the other bands that were similar to ours, you know, thinking they didn't, they didn't feel that they had a good set. You know, they thought they played badly. Yeah, because I think the Grateful Dead, they never wanted to release that live, that any of the live recordings. Yeah. And I know Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend weren't yeah. happy. But at the same time, you know, I suppose um, it was still a kind of a, a landmark moment, I guess. And again, you wouldn't have um, known that at the time because you were just thinking, this is a That's bit right. different. Yeah, yeah. Well, nobody knew, of course. The, the, the caterers, so the festival was the only catering for about 50,000 people or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> ten times that people number of people turned up. It was um and, and famously, I mean, for those that are interested in Woodstock, was that the Keith Hartley man wasn't recorded or filmed, and this was because the manager, this guy called Johnny Jones, he wouldn't let them film or record us without a contract. So this was looking back on it. It's often said, you know, well, that was it was it was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but in fact, uh, I don't. You might be aware. I don't know that there is now a complete box set of uh, CDs. Um, I'm not even sure whether they're DVDs. I mean, I haven't got them. And I don't. I don't. I don't suppose I'll bother to get them either. There's something like 25 CDs or the complete recordings of every single band, and with Keith Hartley band is on there. Right. So, somehow there's pirate recordings or people in the audience recording them on somehow other than portable tape machines, I really don't know. But there is, in fact, uh, the Keith Hartley band is, does appear on that. Yes, know. I there's, do. There's, there's also a documentary which surprised me when I saw it only a few months ago. And I thought I'd sit down and watch it. And at one point, I, I was very surprised. Suddenly, there was an announcement from the stage saying, ladies and gentlemen, the Keith Hartley band. And I went, what? And then there was a film from the distance, way back in the, the background, and you could just make out the band on stage. It was me with my red hair, red hair in those days. And you could just, and then there's a camera. There was a picture of me right next to me. A camera was right next to my, like my right shoulder. And there was my long ginger hair and everything playing the trumpet. And I was so surprised to see all that. And my son managed to capture a, a couple of still stills from it, and uh, I've got I've got uh, that photo of me like taken there at Woodstock. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> that's 
that's an amazing moment, yeah. isn't it, really? Yeah. I know, I think people like The Grateful Dead, as I mentioned, but also the incredible string band also had... Yeah. I don't think they had played in front of that many people and had never probably done that many big festivals. So obviously it would have been an absolutely kind of overwhelming experience, especially when, you know, you're doing sort of a folk, folk sort yeah, of set. Curiously enough, the only, apart from Keith Hartley band, the only other person I've ever met that played at Woodstock was the guy in from the Incredible String Band. Who, um, I forgot his name now. There's Robin. There's Robin and um, can't remember who the other guy yeah, was. I think so. Yeah. Right. He now goes around as a with a with a harp and tells stories like a like a Celtic bard. Yes, I think I saw, he... him, I saw him in the assembly rooms in Glastonbury Town. Not not nothing to do with Glastonbury Festival. No. The assembly room in uh, uh, rooms in Glastonbury, yeah. and went and had a talk to him, and he said the same thing that I've said to you. He says that they they were very nervous and they had a terrible set. They were actually playing when we were leaving, when we were getting on a helicopter to leave. They were on stage then. Yes, Remember? amazing. Anyway, he said they had they they had a terrible set. And as I said, it's the only time I've ever met anybody that played at Woodstock other than the ex-members of the Keith Hartley band, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. You flew in, got on stage, did your set, and then just flew out again like something from a Hollywood yeah. movie, really, sort of in, in yeah, a sort of... That's amazing. And then continued to the rest of the tour. If only we took as many pictures then as we do now, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? It was very important for us to get on the helicopter to get out because they were telling us that they wouldn't fly the helicopters at night. Right. We were anxious and we, we did get one. And then presumably, well, I can't really remember much about that, really, but we um, went back to that motel again, you know, and uh, the next day we, we went to, to New York City. That was the Sunday. And I, what I remember the final thing, really, was going down Highway 17, which had been and people had just left their cars or they're not even bothered to go to the festival. They couldn't get there. So they're all sitting on their cars or by their cars, either yes. you know, both sides of the road. Well, we were going back for a few miles, going back towards New York, and they're all they're all doing the hippie signal, you know, as we were passing and all that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. God. It so then when you it was what a story so when you then you know came back and then suddenly it's another decade how did you and did your time with Keith Hartley did that finish at that point or did it continue for any more time no, it continued for a few months really into the following year uh, mum, this manager Johnny Jones was urging me to form a band and leave Keith Hartley you know and I did although it, it he dropped the project like a, like a ton of hot bricks once he found out the kind of music we were playing, which wasn't rock and roll. <laughs> oh, so, uh, he, uh, you know, I, I just have to say one other thing, though, that, that playing at Woodstock was a sort of very sort of uh, interesting and you could say exciting experience of that tour. But, but the big high, one of the big high spots for me on that tour was being introduced to Miles Davis and having a conversation with him. Right. Um, Dave Holland, his bass player at the time was the English bass player Dave Holland. And he, uh, 
he was with Miles Davis for three years, you know, but he, he I knew him in England before he, he went to America. And he introduced me to Miles Davis as a trumpet player from England. And Miles actually was weirdly, I mean, he's very pleasant. He was very, very warm and friendly. And uh, and he, um, he was in a way, he was more interested in me than I was in him because I was playing in a rock band in a club, the Whiskey of Coco, a trendy club, mm. 2,000 people every night. Miles is playing in Shelley's Manhole, a little jazz club in Hollywood, you know, to about 50 people. And I think it was the time when he was he was really thinking about changing his direction. Yes. And that, and that he wanted, he'd rather have been playing in the club where I was. So I distinctly remember him ask, asking me whether I played solos in this band, I mean, trumpet solos, because trumpet saxophone solos are more common. Mm-hmm. But trumpet solos are, you know, are relatively rarer, you know. So I remember him asking me whether I played improvised solos, you know. So that was and what did you and what did you say? It isn't much like what I can remember. I think well, I must have just said yes, I do, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether I said I also play a violin solo as well. I don't know, you know. <laughs> but he uh, he was very pleasant and very 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 warm and friendly, you know. Yes, I suppose at that stage he'd obviously done... Had he done Bitches Brew by then? Yes, he had. I knew this. It hadn't been released, but I knew he had because on, on the tour, uh, I went to see the Horace Silvers band in Detroit in a club, and I got to talk to Randy Brecker, the trumpet player with him at, the, at that time, and Randy Brecker told me about this record Miles had made with three drummers and with rock, with rock musicians. And uh, he told me all about it. So, um, so I already knew that Miles had recorded that. Yeah, even right. though I hadn't yet heard it. Yes. And had you been influenced by you know albums like Kind of Blue, by the way? Oh, I think it, I think everybody must have. You know, yeah. It was it was the it was the go to the first Miles Davis album we always bought, wasn't it? Really. Right. It's one yes. of the first records I I bought. In fact, when I was very, when I was young. Yes, no. So yeah, it was very. Yes, it, yeah, absolutely. I've always yeah. I've always loved Miles Davis. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then, how did you navigate the seventies? Because obviously, your sixties, you know, was kind of very amazing and sort of ended on, on yeah. that massive high. How was how you know? Because I know with speaking to a lot of musicians, often then keeping the kind of energy going and keeping the kind of progression of some yeah. description going is, is often a little bit more yeah. like a stamina than an, an a marathon than a sprint. Yeah. Well, I mean, during the 70s, of course, I was earning my living as a freelance musician. I mean, and that meant, you know, I did a lot of incredible amount of studio work and played on loads and loads of people's albums, you know. As, as, and, but at the same time, I'm always keeping all my jazz things going. And, and my life as a freelance musician took me into all sorts of places, you know, into uh, took me into symphony orchestras and stuff like that as well. Yes. As well as, um, you know, as well as not, not, only, not only playing on sort of like rock and pop records, but also, um, of course, the straight middle of the road things, playing in light music orchestras. I used to play with the BBC big band a lot as a, you know, as a, as a, what we, you know, as a deputy. And when somebody was ill, I used to get called and go and do the BBC big band. 
and I played in many big bands. Uh, and as you as you mentioned earlier, I played with John Dankworth. I first played with John Dankworth in 1967, and I, and I played with him right up until he died. Right. And in fact, I, I think I'm the longest serving musician John Dankworth ever had. Amazing. Amazing. In, fact, in fact, the very last time he ever played was with me and uh, the drummer Paul Clarvis when we were up in uh, Wavendon, where he lived, in the, the Stables Theatre, playing. Um, they used to put on these lunchtime things on Sunday called Jazz Matters, just to a small audience in a small room. And they used to like you to talk to the audience as well as play. Mm -hmm. Paul Clarvis and I went up just trumpet and drums. And uh, and I and John Dankworth was there, and he asked to play with us, and he was in in a wheelchair at that point, and he and then uh, that was the very last time he ever played, in you know, so so when I look back on my experience with John Dankworth, it's quite amazing, really. God, it is amazing. So how do, I mean, with with being in the position then, because I noticed that you played with so many people from Talk Talk to the Pretenders to the Buzzcocks, yeah. so. And, you know, and there had been people like David Essex and, and you know, more, not obvious, but sort of more sort of, I suppose, people that are suited to your style. What What's that like when you get the call to say, oh, by the way, there's a, a young punk band and they just want a trumpet player? I mean, do you just then, do you get a brief of what they want or do you sort of just have to improvise and do it in the studio? Well, of course, it, it, it varied, you know, it varied according to what they were doing or what they wanted. Sometimes there was arrangements which were already written and prepared. So all you had to do was go in and read the music and you know and record. And then others they wanted some kind of input. Could you think of this to play? Could you think of something? Or uh, it was very rarely solos, as I said earlier, saxophone solos were far more common than trumpet solos. But they so they ask you to think of something. And occasionally I'd end up doing a little arrangement for things. <laughs> Some of the record producers didn't understand it. You can't just get five horn players in in a studio and expect them just to play just like that, as if they like they, you could with a single guitar player. You know, you, you have to sort of have some kind of preparation, and uh, so you know, um, so it could vary. I mean, you mentioned talk talk there, and they they were very detailed. It was always very interesting. It was one of the most you know, all that sort of scene for me, the talk talk was one of the most interesting things. And Mark Hollis, uh, I mean, he, his favourite music was Gil Evans. Right. He said, that, he said that to me. And in fact, the last thing he ever did was a solo, uh, just him. And I remember it was an experiment in the studio where they had a pair of stereo microphones in one position. And, the, and, and it, it was intended to be an almost entirely acoustic album. Just acoustic instruments, and they, when I went and did mine, they experimented by getting you to stand in different parts of the room. Right. Could you face the microphone. Could you turn your back to the microphone? Could you go over that side of the room? It, it, the whole thing was put together. So they were experimental musicians. Him and Tom, was it Tom Freeze Green? Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. They were, and they used to write things out and often quite detailed and, and, and uh, very precise. Things had to be very precise. They like clarinets, which is an unusual thing. They always had some clarinets in their recordings. 
Yes, it is very unusual, isn't it? But I guess they did have a very lush sound, didn't they, Talk Talk, which was quite amazing. And what was it like then with someone like the Buzzcocks asking you to sort of, um, you know, play on one of their tracks or album? I can't remember. I, I, I know I did that, and I remember doing this. I remember the studio where, where I, I recorded them, but I, I can't remember whether we made something up or whether they had an idea what they wanted and, you know, whether somebody had written something down or whether they sometimes they maybe they used to sing things to you and say, can you play this, you know. Right, there I you remember. go. I, got I did so much of that recording in those days that it's impossible to remember in detail everything you did. Yes. Well, you're, you're between the 70s and 80s, it was just like I just was looking at your discography and it's like wow you must have just been going out literally every day with your trumpet and oh, going yeah. to another studio absolutely sometimes i can remember even like at least at least one day in my life i remember going to five studios in one day <laughs> <laughs> and london was amazing in those days it's not like that anymore i mean there was you know the whole world wanted to come to london to record yes you used to talk about the london studio sound or something something like that you know and the, so the studios were in constant uh, use all the time and there's so many of them you know all over all over london and some of course outside of london too but uh, but i mean the, there was jingles you know tv commercials or, and well for that matter radio uh, recordings was um jingle to a, a, a musician is an hour yes you get paid a fee for one hour a musician's union rate you know and uh, often the jingle companies they couldn't they had difficulty actually finding studios so they used to there was a common phenomenon where you recorded at eight o'clock in the morning they wouldn't record between midnight and eight o'clock in the morning because the union thing was that you had to get paid double money right so the first time they could get you a regular the rate would be eight o'clock in the morning. So eight o'clock jingles were quite a common phenomenon for, for musicians like me as well. And, they, they know, and I mean, you couldn't do it anymore because you could just get out of bed, jump in your car, go somewhere, park, play the jingle. And if you didn't have anything else on, you could get back in your car, go back home and go to bed. You know, <laughs> but you can't do that now because you can't park a car anywhere in London now. You know, no. you can't. It's not. It's impossible. You know. I mean, or at least ludicrously expensive. You know. Tricky. So that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. And and, and also, there's that studio phenomena of those days is long gone. Yeah, you know, that's a common part of 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 the life of a, a session musician. Yes. And did you ever have any residential kind of sessions? Like I know there's that one in Rockfields in sort of the countryside in Wales. Or did you did you ever have to go and sort of spend a day or week kind of, you know, in a residential environment? No, I never did that. I did play at Rockfield, but not 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 uh, residentially. Right. I mean, it was I remember I remember going there and uh with the well-known saxophone player in those days who appeared on everything from he came out of the band back door was Ronnie Asprey and I remember going to Rockfield with Ronnie Asprey and uh, just to put something on somebody's record and uh, and we got a bit fed up with the the inefficiency of everything 
And I, and I can't remember what happened, but I remember they, they, they gave us a bed each for the night and they're not even cleaned the sheets. It was, you know, they, they had to sleep on the sub. So we, we, we both got up, got up and said, no, let's just fuck off. <laughs> so we did. We just left. So, you know. Yes. That was my experience at Rockford. I, put, I wouldn't have put up with that either. It yeah. would have been, not unless you're 16 or something. But, um, yeah, so, and was there any, on with any of your sessions that you recorded on, were there any that you felt were particularly special when you listened back, or did it never have that experience where, you, where the, have you been able to hear the actual song? Because I know with some people, they, I don't know, there's uh, Keith Spedding, he, you know, performed with a lot of people. And I remember him with Harry Nilsson and he was like, God, you know, you recorded some of the most classic songs. Did you know at the time what it was going to be like? And he he said, no, not at all. You just, the songs that you think are going to be amazing just disappear. And the ones that you just think, oh, that was all right, turn out to be these, wow, you know, people are going to listen to them for the rest of, you know, popular music, you know, time. Uh, yeah, Chris Bannon was uh, absolutely right. Uh, you wouldn't have known. And, uh, and, and I know it sounds, I mean, I know a lot of musicians like studio musicians, jazz musicians, whatever you want to call them, they often actually, you know, in the rock scene, we're actually, um, you know, not thought of kindly but sometimes by some people. They used to, and Brian Ferry used to call a lot of studio musicians musical mercenaries. And I mean, it was never it was never fair because I mean, we always took pride in what we did. You know, nobody played. We always took pride. However, once they'd gone out of the studio, it was often forgotten again. You know, I mean, it was a. Uh, it, it depends what it is. It, it, it wasn't often where I wanted to listen to something again. Right. Yes. Funny enough, the best the the, the thing I'm, I'm doing all that sort of thing that I'm. I, I was always proud, and because I was pleased with what I did, it was uh, there was a, 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 a black uh, band called the JALN band, and I recorded with them. And there was a guy from New Zealand wrote all the arrangements. Uh, he went off to Paris. I don't know what happened to him, but he um, he wrote all the arrangements. And they first of all they were excellent arrangements done by somebody that knew what he was doing. And then they asked me to put a solo on this last track. And I played a solo with a, pl a plunger mute, a lot of growling, which is not the normal thing that I do. But I was very pleased with that solo. It was the first, it was the first take. And curiously enough, because it was a kind of concept album they did, that it, it, it disintegrates at the end into an atomic bomb explosion. <laughs> it's a nuclear explosion. They were called the JALN band. J L. Yeah. Do you but say J J L N? Just making a note, actually. Yes, there you go. I will check them out, actually. And you guessed it. Did you? I wasn't sure. Did you ever play with Nick Drake? Was that one a person that you did, or have I got that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Um, what one? What album were you playing with Nick Drake? I don't know, but I know. I know I did. It was well known because there was a lot. Of, and certainly there was. Um, I remember him. Yeah, he was very talented, and um, and sadly, uh, he sadly committed suicide, didn't he? Mm -hmm. But he, uh, but there was a renewal of interest in him uh, a little while ago, um, and um, the guy that did the arrangements that we played for Nick Drake, um, he, he came out. He'd been working in another 
you know, as a non-musician for years. And he, he came out of retirement because they asked him to do some arrangements for other things, uh, strings. And, uh, and he asked me to play on something and he did the arrangement. What was he called? There's a guy who did a lot of producing with Nick Drake called Joe Boyd. Um, he was a producer. He was the producer. Yeah. But he wasn't the arranger. No, 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 no. The arranger was a... Oh, was a I know he died since I, since I did the recording. He was a nice bloke. Right. Oh, he, he wrote he wrote well, but Joe Boyd and the thing is, I always had a I always had a lot of um, I always liked the association uh, with with what I think of as folk folk musicians. You know, like, like Nick Drake. Yeah. And, and, and I personally knew Fairport Convention because I mean, the part from this, they were a kind of Muswell Hill band, which is where I live. And um, and uh, the Fairport is a house in Muswell Hill. And a couple of people in when the band was formed were living there. Right. So they named the band uh, after the house. And I knew those guys. My first wife played cello, played a cello solo on their first album. Nice. Was Richard Thompson in the band then? Was he in the Fairport at the beginning? I'm not sure. Yes, blimey. I recorded on an album with Richard Thompson. My and, God. Uh, but, um, uh, it was their first album. Uh, my first wife played a cello solo. Oh, I'd have, I'll check that out, actually. So then, as, 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 as the decades were going, did you... How did you then sort of navigate, because obviously phenomenal sort of work between you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s. Then what about the 90s? How was how was that decade for you, sort of musically? Well, I suppose the 90s was when things began to change a bit, you know, like, um, I mean, uh, I think the priorities of uh, the public or the consumer had changed a lot by then. And, you know, you got the feeling that music wasn't... Uh, Music wasn't as important to people as it had been before, perhaps. Although, if it if they did, it became more like dance music, you know, from disco into what they just call the club scene today. Yes, I guess it, I guess it morphed more into that. I've got a feeling that live music, seeing bands and things, and and there was another thing too. There was it's like levels. I mean, you you can get sort of. You get some like a band of people playing blues in the back room of a pub for the door money, or, or you know, you, there's, there's a kind of lot of that. Or the other end of the scale is the sort of massive, enormous uh, pop things, you know, which cost a fortune to, to mount. You know, where you have hundreds of people that are working. You know, like somebody to do the lasers, somebody to do the 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 the, the sound on stage, somebody to do the PA, the humpers, you know, the roadies. Yes. I mean, there's so many people and going around the country, huge, you know, convoys of pantechnical, you know, juggernauts, you know, in order to put concerts on in football stadiums or the NEC in Birmingham or Wembley Stadium, you know. But there seemed to me that... Uh, by the 90s, this middle level, which was possible, like at the time I played with uh, Manfred Mann and uh, John Mayer and Keith Hartley, and for that matter, a lot of jazz things, was a kind of middle level, you know, which wasn't, you know, somehow there was a circuit and you could make reasonable money, you know, 
fees. Mm-hmm. Like uni- playing in universities, for example. I never hear of anybody playing in a university now. I don't yes. think they have music in universities anymore. I never hear of it. No, I think it, that that kind of, I suppose people who did it, or well, like that period where you just did it, as you said, for the door money or just, you know, you'd just be there on a Wednesday night. I know I was talking to Terry Reid, who was a blues rock player. I mean, he used to have a residency on in LA on a sort of Tuesday night. And I think, you know, that was where he made enough yeah. money to survive. But I, I don't know if that world still exists or not anymore. So um I don't never hear I mean I remember all these clubs that were around the country as well, you know, like mothers in uh, in in the suburb of Birmingham and uh, the Ricky Tick Club in Windsor. I mean there were loads of little places like that that could get a fair crowd in, you know. Big big rooms at the back of pubs and stuff like that. Yes, did with John Mayle. You know, that was the you know ninety percent of all the gigs you did were seen like that. I'm just not I'm just not aware that that scene exists anymore. I'm sure it doesn't. You know, there has changed. So then, because I mean, you. Because then during that period, you were in people, a thing, you know, you know, combo is called the Dedication the dedication Orchestra and the Jazz, London Jazz yeah. Orchestra. So were you sort of at this stage kind of then becoming more part of ensembles? More part of what? Sorry. Sort of bands and on and sort of bigger, bigger outfits. Were you becoming a member of those sort of outfits? You mean big bands? Yes. Well, I'd always played in big bands, of course, you know, all the way from, uh, you know, John Dankworth and the New Jazz Orchestra in the 60s, uh, all the way through my life. I've always played in big bands. I mean, on the jazz scene, big bands, uh, I, I joke about it, and they say they're labour intensive. You know, you don't need one trumpet player, you need four, you know. So, uh, you know, like, um, so they're always have been a part of your life as a, a musician. I've, I played in so many big bands, you know. Yes. You know, including a visit in America. I mean, in the 80s, I played with Gil Evans, you know, quite a few times, Gil Evans. And George Russell, an American composer, who come over to Europe regularly. I played, you know, big bands all my life, yeah. Yes. Because coming... Coming up to the sort of current day, almost, I, I was watching your, there was a live concert you did, the London Jazz Festival in 2020. So is, and this was your Steel Waters. I mean, are you now sort of, have you just got a band that you just go around the circuit in London playing playing jazz to, or was that something that's kind of finished now? No, no, I'm still doing that. Still Waters is my n- number one priority in my life now. I mean, I'm 81 years old, you know, so... I don't I don't feel the same urgency to uh, do everything, you know, like, as it were. Uh, not that I get not that I get asked to do everything anymore. Uh, I often say when people say, "Are you, are you retired?" They say, "No, I'm just semi I'm semi required." <laughs> but I mean, I, I no, but still, waters is important to me, and. Um, we don't play that often. It's not possible to play all that often because the gigs are not uh, not many gigs. And what gigs you do do, the way the jazz scene works is uh, you do a gig and you, you they don't ever want you back. And not because they don't like what you do. It's just because they promoters feel the need all the time to do to to bring on something new. A lot of jazz musicians these days don't have bands. 
they they try to survive by always creating a new band. Right. Once you play something with an a band, they don't want you back. But as I, and also the, a lot of things that they do like it's a bit like the rock scene these days. Uh, popular things there's, there's tribute bands there's tribute bands everywhere you know from pink floyd the beatles the rolling stones you know and then well it's the same in jazz now you get people they play a tribute to uh, you know a tribute to cannibal adley or to thelonious monk or to miles davis you know and they they but i don't i play original music and that's harder that's if you know what i mean it's harder to for people to uh relate to it yes i think the world... alan barnes a well-known jazz musician is very funny he's a, he's got a great sense of humor and he's great on stage and he he sometimes says on a gig you know no i'm going to speak the words that the jazz jazz audiences everywhere dread to hear we're going to play an original you mean a new, a new piece? <laughs> he, he always announces it like that. But still, Waters, we play all my original uh, music, you know. And uh, and I've just done a big band album, in fact. Right. It's and not, is that? It's not ready yet. It's not even edited and mixed yet. But we recorded it with the London Jazz Orchestra. Fantastic. I've been a member of for about twenty-five years. Yeah. And is that? And I was going to say, is that due out early next year? Well, God, God knows at this stage. I'm, hopefully it will be out next year. I'm hoping it will be. But, I mean, uh, that's a big band album of all my compositions and things. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, if there was one thing or several things that you could have whispered in your, say when you were 16, if somebody could have whispered something, is there some, you know, from the wisdom and the experience that you had over the decades, is there a few things that you might have just said, or do this, or don't do that, or keep doing doing that thing that you're doing at the moment. No, I just wondered what advice or you know little Honestly. kind of nuggets you might have mentioned. Well, apart from the fact uh, I'd tell them not to vote Tory, <laughs> but uh, that's I got that from Paul Clarvis, my my drummer friend, because he he was the he was on the adjudication. In fact, he was the chairman of the adjudic of the adjudicate adjudica section the bbc's young musician of the year awards and he was chairman of the percussion section and that and he actually said that during an interview when they asked him what advice would you give to a young percussionist and he said don't vote tory but naturally the bbc didn't actually broadcast that <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I, I got that from him so i can't claim credit for that no what advice well I'd just say the usual thing, really, that, you know, um, you know, is like learn, learn to play your instrument and, 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 and learn to read music because you life people. There are people who don't read music, but their, their chances of employment are usually consequently limited. Yes. I mean, and, um, and certainly if I'm teaching or giving advice to jazz players, it's very important, you know, for jazz musicians to learn their scales. Not that jazz is all scales, like some people think it is. It's like Charlie Parker was once said that to a young musician. He said, uh, the young musician said, do I really have to learn all these scales? And Charlie Parker says, yes, but then forget them. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that, my advice is yes, to learn, learn to play your instrument properly and practice, you know. Yes. And are, yeah. you, and are you pleased with the amount of albums you've done yourself? I mean... Or would you have 
like to have recorded more bits and pieces as, as your own, you know, band? Yeah, some people often express, you know, some surprise that I've not recorded as much as a jazz musician or or, or, or rather music under my own name. Yeah. And the reason is, of course, is because I've always been busy playing other people's music. Yes. You know, uh, I, I, I often think if I, I have one one regret, maybe, I always I would like to have had the idea that I was in a band for many, many years. Right. You know, a lot of, I mean, I you know, Charlie Watts in the Rolling Stones, I know, you know, I knew him. He went to school with my closest friend, the bass player, Dave Green. They went to school together. And Dave was actually Charlie's closest friend. And, uh, and consequently, Charlie became a friend through, through him, for me. But I look at Charlie's life, and it's, I mean, I envy in the lifestyle of the Rolling Stones and all the money that they earned is not, is not the thing that I envy. What I envy mostly is the fact they have actually had a band all their life, you know. And because the thing about the Rolling Stones I found out through Charlie Watts is they are actually all really good friends. That's not true of all those bands, you know. Pink no. Floyd, uh, the, the Who, a lot of them have actually... They, 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 they don't like each other. And we all know about Paul McCartney and John Lennon and so on. But, I mean, I'm just saying the Rolling Stones are all are very good friends, you know. And I've, I've envied that. I'd like to have been in a band with where all the members have a kind of equal creative uh, output, you know. And that's never been possible in my life, you know. No. Just but cool. That would have been a, a nice thing for me. Nice and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Henry for giving me that time, uh, the time for this interview. Also, you can find his website if you just Google his name, henrylother.com. Um, it's all there. Uh, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David East. So if you want to contact me, I know, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived on Spotify iTunes, Podbean, it's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.